Thank you, choir, and thank you, Jim, also, for starting us off with the tradition that you shared with us, your gifts. As I, as I prepare to be with us, to be together on Sunday morning, one thing that I'm always aware of is just how much there is to really talk about and to consider in terms of the scriptures that we're referring to and listening to and reflecting upon. And a lot of folks have spoken to me and I've heard conversation about having Bible study to start again in some ways and I'm looking forward to doing that. So I wanna remember to invite your suggestions on how and when we might do that to have conversations about these scriptures because they're so deep and there's so much to learn. Um, we started out, <clears throat> excuse me, with talking a bit about traditions with the kids. There's a lot of hospitals that have, uh, in recent years, started to practice a tradition of having a chaplain on staff. And when I was serving at Westchester Medical Center as an intern, it's up in Valhalla, New York, and it's a trauma one center. It was a very large center for training chaplains. I did all my CPE work there, which is clinical pastoral education. It, it spans four units, 1,200 hours, and basically when you do that work, and, and it's available to others who might be involved or interested in doing chaplaincy. Um, at that location, we followed a medical model. So we would work in emergency, we'd work in hyperbolic unit, which they had, hyperbaric, and all of the different places in the hospital. And one night I was on call. I did a lot of overnights. And I got a call, and the woman on the other end of the phone, happened to be a woman, said, my daughter is in NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit. She said, would you go up and pray for her and with her? She says, I can't get there tonight. I'm not feeling well. I'll be there tomorrow, but I would like someone to be with her tonight. So I said, sure. And I had never been to NICU. I hadn't found my way there yet. It was a little bit after midnight, and when I walked into the unit, the first thing that happened was the nurse, I love nurses, she saw me, she came right up to me, she checked me out, she looked at who I was, okay, you're fine, because I wasn't getting one foot inside of that unit until she said, you can go inside. And when I walked in, there were maybe 12 incubators lining the room, eight or 10 or 12. The lights were very dim, and there was this blue hue from all of the lights of the technology that was keeping these young children tethered to this world. And so I went over to the incubator with the young girl, it happened to be a girl again, and I, I got caught somewhere between being in awe and being totally stunned. I had never seen a human being that small. The infant was a little bit over 22 weeks, which is about the minimum for a child to enter this world and still have a chance of surviving. Her hand would fit inside of my thumbnail with room to spare. The, her entire head was, would fit into the small section of the palm of my hand. And I, and I looked. 
And I thought, this child is closer to God in Kronos time, in our TikTok time, having really just been born, as well as in Kairos time, God's time of creation. And there was this sense of overwhelming love coming from the child, but also from the love that you just knew God had for this child that was in that incubator, as God does for all of us. But it was, there was something more pronounced. And I, so I, I put my hand on the top of the incubator, and I stood there, and I put my other hand somewhere out into the near universe, into the kingdom that is near, and I prayed. And I was overwhelmed. Not with sadness, with, with joy, with love, but I was overwhelmed by the, the liminality of it all, the nearness of God in that setting, that presence of God. Um, and you know, we, we talk about that God's presence, God's love, as we mentioned with with Abigail and with Matthew um, and with Sage, that God's presence and love is always with us. There's just a sometimes when it's like right there and it catches you off guard. Um, it's a funny thing, chaplaincy. You're always surprised if you're doing that work. And I, I have to tell you that if I had died at that moment, my journey home would have been a bit closer a bit nearer. So when I read the scriptures today and I thought about Simeon and Anna in the temple and I'm reading about Luke who's putting this all together and I'm thinking of that. I'm thinking about how the birth of the child that I saw had such impact on me and how the birth of this child that was brought into the temple, that was presented into the temple by Mary and Joseph because see, that's the law. That's what you did. That was the tradition. You brought your newborn child after eight weeks, I think it was, and you brought the child into the temple. And there you offered your firstborn to the temple. But so that you could keep your firstborn, you could redeem the child with doves or with a lamb. And there was a whole process. Now, Luke doesn't, Luke is either, we think, a Gentile, a Christian Gentile, or a Hellenized Jew. He spoke Greek, and he has a, a familiarity with the traditions of Judaism. But if you know them, if you know the laws that talk about purification, presenting the child in purification, and the redemption process, you will see some gaps here. Luke has a general idea. But this is what I was thinking about how Bible study would, it's really fascinating to learn about what the processes were back then and how tradition played such an important role in carrying on the life of the Jews uh, according to the Torah. And Luke was also pretty, his presentation, he drew upon others, he drew upon Isaiah. You'll, you'll hear in, in the reading, or perhaps you heard in the reading, something from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 5, where Isaiah says, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. That's in the text. And he even pulls out Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says in chapter 14, verse 7, And a sword shall go out into the world. He wasn't talking about the sword at the crucifixion that we know well, about the centurion who put the sword into Jesus' side we're told. 
He was talking about the division that this child was going to bring into the world and how it was going to cause responses and reactions for the child, for the family, for all. And it wasn't a division to separate us for good. It was a division that simply said, if you're going to be on the side of love, if you're going to follow the teachings that are being put forward by this Jesus the Christ, then you're going to find yourself at times in opposition to others. And there's going to be a division. But with love, with these teachings, with following these teaches, teachings, we will hopefully be able to build a bridge so that even the coldest, hardest, most challenging of hearts can find their way to the love of God that we understand. And I don't know that Luke had any children. We don't even know if that was really his name or not. We don't know really all that much about him. But it seems to me reading this that he knew something about looking into the eyes of a child and the impact that that has on us all and the way that that can change us all. That unconditional love that children bring into the world that we are, are blessed with and sometimes there's other things that we wonder if this is indeed a blessing as we're running around trying to get kids perhaps in a classroom or what have you. But I have a feeling that Luke understand, understood that children are truly a gift. And when Jesus said, suffer the little children later on in Luke, he was saying, you know, this is where it's at. If we can love one another with the same unconditional love that a child has, with that present love that I give to each and every one of you that is more apparent perhaps when you hold the child in your arms, we've got a chance. Sometimes, though, sometimes we miss it, don't we? Sometimes we miss it and kids take the brunt of the actions of adults. But even then, with some guidance and support and a community that is aware of each other, our lives, and those in our community that need help, we can bring support through our tradition of faith and outreach and practice to children and to others, and there is this hope. This is from NPR, <clears throat> and it was on, um, it was posted in January around uh, Remembrance Day for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the link is on our website if you want to follow it. But it talks about a young man by the name of Odedi Kennedy. And he lived in the slums in the streets of, of Kenya. And he had grown up in very tough circumstances, they tell us. His father, his stepfather was violence, violent. There wasn't enough food to go around. He wasn't sent to school. And a friend convinced him, hey, Odedi, you would do better to be on your own. Get out of there. Be free. Find your own way. So at age 10, Odedi did just that. His new world was a world, according to NPR, his new world was a world of violence. He was caught up in gang fights. He remembers being stabbed in the arm. I still have the scar, he says. Then one day when he was 12 or so, he met Martin Luther King Jr. on the pages of a book that an older friend had given him at the community center. Kennedy later says, I was looking for hope in my life. Kennedy, who's now 30, said that when I read the story of Dr. King, 
It was a powerful story. Dr. King gave me a reason to believe you can catch your own life and change your own community. His idea is that you don't have to wait. Anyone's path can change. And for me, he said that was very, very powerful. When asked the question, what struck you about Dr. King's life? He answered in this way. He said the world was full of hatred at that time in America. But he, Dr. King, didn't allow darkness to conquer his life. He looked for light. He looked for hope. I'm sure he looked in the eyes of his children and saw those things. Bodhidi said, I admire people who because of circumstances could turn out to because circumstances could turn out to be negative, and yet they turned out positive to peace in a way to fight for justice because of this hope and this light. Today, Kennedy O'Dady runs a nonprofit called Shining Hope for Communities, and he provides free primary school for girls and helps youth find jobs. The story of hope, the story of not giving up, the story of being in the light, in this presence of God, this is our tradition. More deeply, it is what we believe. I may have said this to you. I've had to fill out all of these forms over time. Statement of faiths, they call them, where you have to explain to the body that's reviewing whether or not you should be called or accepted into a community. Um, you, you make this statement of faith, and they read it, and then they ask you questions about it. And I have to say that after doing it about five times and after getting to this point in my life where I am, I truly believe the only thing I need to put in the middle of that page are two words with a period. I believe. I believe. You know, I've said here before that how we all come from different places. I, I, I've said I don't care who you supported or didn't support in the election. I care, or in anything else, local politics. I, I care about what it is that we are supporting in terms of being there for people who need help <clears throat> and that the people that we are working with assist us in getting there. And our beliefs and our traditions lead us to the next story, I think, a story about Fatima that crystallizes what I'm speaking about. Fatima Rashad is a four-month-old Iranian baby with a serious heart defect. Fatima was on her way to the United States of America, to the Oregon Health and Science University Dornberger Children's Hospital in Oregon for heart surgery that couldn't be provided to her in Iran where she lived. They didn't have the resources. Her uncle was, an, was a, a, of Iranian descent, and a naturalized American citizen, or an American citizen, his wife. They had made arrangements to bring Fatima here. Fatima got on a plane in Iran, as the plane flew into Dubai, and she was ready to make the change to come to the United States, the ban stopped her from going any further, and she was returned to Iran. I just can't believe that anyone who signed anything to prevent whatever is trying to be prevented from happening intended for Fatima not to receive the life-saving surgery that she was called to receive. And so just before this ban was reversed and thrown back into the courts again, 
local and federal officials got together, the family got together, the hospital got together, and they got, even from the new Secretary of State, they got a waiver so that Fatima could travel back to the United States for the surgery, because that's who we are. That's, that's who we are. That, at least that's who I think we are that we can all agree on. That's who we are. And that's where I see our work and our efforts following in the tradition of the love that God has given for us that we are called to share with others that transcends this other stuff that's important. But it's keeping focus on what we can agree on together. So I think that maybe if we look at the children around us, the children we care for, that maybe that's where we would see the revelation of God in a way that helps us to remember that God is in each other in ways that sent us out to do the work I believe we're called to do. The broad, unfettered fear that would keep a Fatima from reaching our shores for surgery cannot be acceptable to any of us. It is the same fear that kept this nation, this nation divided over race and which we have yet to come to understand how to resolve. It is the same fear that over time has excluded members of the LGBT community from places where nobody should be excluded, including the bedside of their loved ones as they were in an intensive care unit and prevented from being there because they couldn't show legally why they should be there. It is that fear which cannot be accepted that was part of the lynching to the segregation of schools that somehow never quite rose to the radar above a level for way too long that caused a response. Perhaps a response such as we're seeing now of the many hundreds of thousands of people that are protesting and standing for what they believe is important. We can never accept the institutionalizing fear that divides us rather than the love that divides us not to separate but to establish a clear path toward hope, such as Dr. King did for Kennedy, such as we do for each other all the time, and such as our government did for Fatima. As the infant child in the NICU did for me and for everyone who brought her care, that hope, that love is our tradition. And when it sometimes puts us in opposition, not enemies, but opposition, to some of the things that are going on, it's good to remember that we are coming from that place of hope and love and our call to be there. So as Jesus and God in all the ways you know God continues to do for us, as we remember the life of the risen Christ and the presence of that risen Christ in our lives and this call of love, the greatest of traditions, 
the one that is ours to share, presented to others in all the way we are able, just as Jesus was in the temple. Let us be the Simeon and the Anna, the Zechariah and the Elizabeth. Let us be the faithful ones, so that when it is time for our nunc dimittis, which is Latin for what was spoken to Simeon, that Simeon spoke in the temple that day, I have seen the Lord, now I can be dismissed. When it is time for us to be dismissed, let us do these things so that we are sure to hear the words, my good and faithful servants, how I loved you, how I love you now, and thank you for loving all those I sent you away. Amen.